Well, this is interesting. A new study. It's claiming that the Apple Watch and some other fitness devices can actually detect COVID before its wearer even has a clue that they've been infected. With more on this, let's welcome in our tech expert, Adam Oldfield. He joins us here on Global News Radio. Adam, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here as always. Uh, Quite the claim. Can the Apple Watch, can it, Adam, truly detect if you've got COVID? Well, I, I mean, that is a great medical question. Here's what it can detect, just to be clear. There are signs I know that COVID uh, portrays. Obviously, uh, they've got a lot of medical data now based on, uh, on how much information is out there when it comes to COVID. But uh, talking about the Apple smartwatch is that it's got a lot of uh, rhythmic measuring elements. A lot of smart devices do, whether it's not just Apple, but it could be a, a Samsung smartwatch or a, different, uh, a Fitbit for that matter. Because depending on the settings on what you have, you can have it check your heart rate or your oxygen levels. Apple, by the way, uh, smartwatch, Jeff, has an oxygen level reader in the most recent division or uh, uh, smartware watch they have available. Um, But what it does is it takes these rhythmic patterns. It takes as we want to know how we're sleeping, we want to know how we're breathing, walking, uh, if we're exercising. Uh, And it takes those rhythmic patterns, and it can determine if you have an irregular heartbeat. And it more or less with algorithmic or uh, artificial intelligence could, and this is what they determined at the uh, Mount Sinai, was that they were able to say that if you have COVID, it throws a little bit of a, a, a punch inside your body that you may not feel, but your heart is actually reacting to the COVID virus. So it takes these patterns, measures the oxygen level, measures the heartbeat level. And as it takes this information, it can determine, I mean, your smartwatch isn't going to immediately go, hey, you've got COVID lockdown, but it does give information to say that the patterns or the details of that could be analyzed and possibly will know before you do if you have COVID. All right, the study done at Mount Sinai in New York City, and Adam, I mean, I understand, yes, okay, maybe you've got an irregular or quicker heartbeat, and maybe that's the indicator of uh, COVID, your oxygen levels are off, but couldn't that be the indicator of many things, not just COVID? Correct. Yeah. And that's where I think there's a little bit of a misinformation. I mean, what they're doing, though, is they're combining two pieces of information. That's the oxygen and the oxygen level in your blood, in addition to your heartbeat. So it's using two elements. But the correct answer to your question is, would it not necessarily uh, maybe detect other items? I mean, one one element that I know smart devices are capable of doing is determining, as uh, we've seen in different cases, whether or not you may have early signs of Parkinson's. It may even determine your high level of stress. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a lot of stress right now during this time. In fact, uh, I'm willing to bet any of us with a Fitbit or smartwatch device, uh, Apple or Samsung or, or any device out there, uh, is probably, if you're taking a look at it, it's, it's a little off. We might be feeling a lot more stress in our heart rate due to the fact of just what's going on in the world. So, I mean, these smart devices have a lot of elements of being able to provide uh, some insight. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be able to determine clearly that it's got the element of, geez, my smartwatch is, is displaying elements that show me having COVID, but 
but it might be having issues with respiratory issues. You might be having any kind of medical issues that are out there. Now, there's a lot better smart devices, Jeff, that are out there that are available that could possibly, once we have the proper data, imported and capable of telling us. But to be clear, uh, I think we're a little ways away from taking Apple Watches and going, hey, wait a minute, we, if you have an Apple Watch, you're going to be able to know if you have COVID. All right, full disclosure, as you well know, I do have the uh, latest uh, Apple Watch. I'm currently wearing it. I've been uh, desperately over the last month and a half trying to uh, figure it out. <laughs> you now have me scared to check my Apple Watch. <laughs> but it, in all honesty, though, I mean, when you look at something like uh, heart rate and how it fluctuates and uh, changes, that's not necessarily the indicator. And listen, you're not a doctor, neither am I. But what I do yeah. know about heart rate is that sometimes it does get elevated as the body's mechanism to cope with uh, stress. So just because you're up, you know, I don't know, a couple of beats per minute or something like that is no reason to really just freak out. That's right, yeah. And I think that's something. I mean, I eat Doritos watching an action movie, and it could probably make me feel like I've got some sort of massive uh, heart attack coming on. Um, you know, that's not the case. But again, you know, smart devices are not medical devices. They're just smart. That doesn't give them a medical degree to tell you how you feel. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's a great kind of pattern to kind of utilize and use as a benchmark to understand. And truthfully, when I get asked, Jeff, which is the best device to have to give a better action? Accurate reading. Uh, the Apple smartwatch is a leader in the field out in the market. So it, knowing you have that, you do have the latest in the capability of measuring. And Apple's got a real big intention in the future to continue the investment on that, in, including the fact that the Apple Watch will have an ECG monitor that is, mm, I mean, I am far-fetched far to say, and a doctor would probably uh, argue with me, but could determine whether or not you could be having a heart attack before you actually do have one. Yeah. Do we know how accurate, by the way, the Apple watches and some of these other uh, fitness devices? Because uh, as I've been using this to uh, work out over the last uh, month, uh, month and a half, uh, you know, you do monitor and watch your heart rate. And it has occurred to me, uh, I wonder just with this thing strapped on my wrist, just how accurate is it when it comes to things like uh, heart rate and your oxygen level? Apple's one of the leaders, I have to say, and, and I have a, a Samsung latest gear. I have a Samsung gear watch, um, and I've compared it with the Apple watch, and I have to say that Apple is is much better at, at providing the, the most accurate information. I mean, it's it's actually intriguing. If you put a, 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 a not that I walk around with two smartwatches on, and boy, do I got nerd all over my face, Jeff, but um, <laughs> if I did have both watches on, and we're kind of walking to see what the calorie count was, and measured my heart rate, it's intriguing to see that Apple is off from Samsung. Um, not that I've done this before, but I can tell you it's got a much more accurate, in my opinion, reading pertaining to having the right information. So it's still not perfect than going to a doctor's office and them taking your blood pressure or using a proper uh, 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 blood pressure machine, but it is going to give you a much uh, accurate, better accurate detail of how well you're burning calories, how well your heart's uh, pumping away, and your oxygen levels in your blood system. Uh, it is, I have to say this, and I'm not an Apple user, Jeff, so I say this with a, a bit of uh, disdain, but it is better than most other smart devices in the market. And I will uh, say this, that there is a phrase in the Apple world, the Apple community, close your rings. You want to try to close your fitness ring every day. You want to try to close your movement uh, ring. And I got up this morning, I thought to myself, 
This closing my rings every day is killing me. <laughs> I could barely roll out of bed uh, this morning, but it's a great way to keep you accountable working out. And maybe it could be an indicator, it sounds, uh, of uh, COVID uh, coming on. But again, uh, obviously, uh, consult your doctor. Adam, appreciate the time as always. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Have a great afternoon. You as well. Adam Oldfield, our tech expert. Boeing's troubled 737 MAX 8. It has just been given the green light and as of tomorrow, we'll be able to fly once again in Canadian airspace. Now, if you recall, the plane had been grounded right around the world some 20 months ago, following not one but two crashes just months apart that killed nearly 350 people. And for more on this, we're joined now by Todd Curtis, who is an aviation safety expert with airsafe.com. He joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Todd, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks again for having me. All right. Uh, take us back, if you can, uh, and just remind everybody exactly uh, what was going on some uh, 20 months ago. Uh, what was the problem with these Boeing jets? The problem stemmed from a design change for the 737 MAX. Uh, they were given larger, more fuel-efficient engines, which were situated differently on the wing, changing the flight characteristics of the aircraft. And some of the changes implemented by Boeing to deal with those changes backfired on them. That is, under certain conditions, the automated flight control system would counteract actions of the pilots. And then in those two crashes, the pilots weren't able to recognize what was going on in time, and they were unable to control the aircraft. All right. Well, knowing what we know now, uh, are you surprised? Is the industry surprised that uh, this went this far down the line, that Boeing actually had uh, passengers on these planes? And sadly enough, two of them crashed, as I mentioned a moment ago, killing some 350 people. I got to think with the rigorous testing and the technology that we've got available now that we would be surprised that we get to that point. It was surprising. And in retrospect, it was due in part to managerial and structural changes within the way that aircraft were certified. In short, there was a different philosophy for the relationship between Boeing and the FAA, giving Boeing a little bit more leeway and certifying that the design was okay. Uh, in a recent court filing, Boeing was basically charged with, among other things, uh, not telling the truth to the FAA during the development process. And at least two specific Boeing employees were identified as being part of that. And as a result, the FAA was unaware of some of the issues with those changes. So having said that and knowing that now, should travelers be confident in Boeing, do you think, confident that the problems have been fixed with the uh, 737 MAX 8? I think that the average passenger should be confident that the problem was found out and that changes were implemented not just implemented not just in the aircraft, but in the training for the pilots, in the way the aircraft are going to be regulated by the FAA in the future, and frankly, in the honesty that Boeing had with the public with respect to what does this aircraft do and how does it do it. And should the public take some, uh, I don't know, consolation, if you will, in the fact that it is, uh, you know, Canadian uh, air officials and others from around the world, other countries as well, that they've certified these planes uh, to be safe, that, uh, you know, the, the government has tested it, there's been a third party looking at these? Well, certainly most people in Canada and around the world will uh, be satisfied and actually relieved that this is happening. But, of course, for the 18 or so Canadians who were on board, at least one of those aircraft, uh, who will never come back to see their families. Uh, I'm sure they will not be satisfied any time in this lifetime with what went on. But that said, I think that it would be 
something that the traveling public and the airlines should be aware of, that there's an issue of trust that has been lost because of what happened with the 737 MAX. And there will be a period of time where the average passenger, myself included, may fly on the 737 MAX, but would be very, very conscious of anything that goes wrong with that system, with that aircraft, anywhere around the world. And then that if there is another problem, it may lead to another situation where the aircraft may not be flying for months at a time. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point when it comes to uh, trust and getting on uh, one of these uh, Boeing Max 8 uh, aircrafts. What if you look at your ticket, uh, and I don't think many of us are traveling anytime uh, soon, but, uh, you know, once the vaccine finally gets here and uh, takes effect and we get to some sort of sense of uh, normal and maybe traveling uh, can resume, what if you look at your ticket and it says Boeing 737 on it? Uh, can I say thanks, but no thanks? Uh, what is your right as an airline passenger? Do you know? It depends on the airline. Uh, I know that... Uh, WestJet has already stated that, at least initially, they'll have a very, very uh, open policy with respect to passengers refusing to get on a 737 MAX and being rebooked without charge. Well, that said, uh, initially, that should be the kind of thing that most airlines should follow, simply because of all the things that have happened before. But over time, I think they will revert to, most airlines will revert to whatever rules are in place for that country. And typically, their rules with respect to if you cancel a flight, whether or not you get a refund, whether or not you can be rebooked. And certainly there's limitations with the amount of resources the airline will give you. For example, you're about to get on 737 MAX. The airline has a very liberal policy saying you can cancel any time. You do. But it's the last flight of the day, and you have to stay at this airport overnight. The airline will let you rebook on, the, on another aircraft. I seriously doubt they'll give you meals in a hotel. All right. Uh, finally, Todd, I just want to really underscore this uh, fact about what Boeing ha has done here. Can you kind of uh, highlight for us uh, what exactly uh, they have done to fix this aircraft? You mentioned better pilot uh, training. Structurally, have they uh, have they changed the uh, Max 8 at all? Uh, what has gone on here? There have been specific changes mandated by Boeing and the FAA and sometimes by the airlines with respect to the 737 MAX, one of them being there was a warning system that was in place for the initial version of the 737 MAX where there was an optional upgrade to that warning system that would give you an idea if a certain system on the aircraft had a disagreement between the system and the backup. Well, that is no longer an option. That's going to be required. Before, the operators around the world would allow pilots to transition to the 737 MAX if they were on the previous version just by taking a sit-down, let's say, iPad-based two-hour familiarization session, which didn't talk specifically about the system, and that certainly didn't have any uh, flight simulator or other specific training for that, that's been changed. So I think that the average pilot who's flying this aircraft, way more aware than they would have been two years ago of what this airplane can, airplane can and cannot do. All right. Todd, really appreciate the update. Uh, thanks uh, for joining us this afternoon. Once again, thank you for the opportunity. All right. Our pleasure. Todd Curtis is an aviation safety expert. He is with airsafe.com, commenting on uh, big news uh, late yesterday and here today that Canada has given the green light. And as of tomorrow, Boeing's troubled 737 MAX 8 will be able to fly once again in Canadian airspace. 
On a uh, much different and uh, lighter note, uh, when it comes to uh, air travel and uh, airplanes, getting on airplanes, several of the world's greatest tennis players have done that over the last uh, few days. They've traveled, uh, well, halfway around the world from where we are right now, and they're down under. They're in Australia right now, getting set for the Australian Open. And uh, Mary, Rob, don't know if either of you have uh, seen this uh, online over the last uh, day or so, but uh, Australia, of course, they've got uh, very stringent protocols when it comes to uh, COVID-19 and keeping their residents uh, safe. So every tennis player that has uh, arrived there for the Australian Open, which, by the way, has usually happened by now. It's tennis's first major of the year. They decided to uh, delay it until February, so everybody, all the tennis players, trainers, and coaches could get there and quarantine for 14 days. And, uh, Mary, some of the uh, players, some of the tennis players, not all that happy about being uh, cooped up in the hotel room for uh, two weeks. Well, and you got to give them a lot of credit for being so ingenious and finding a way, as we've all been doing, trying to find a way to make things work and practicing in their rooms. Yeah, it's amazing to watch some of the video. They've posted this online on their Instagram accounts and on uh, TikTok. I know a Canadian, uh, Vasek uh, Pospisil, he has uh, done this showing uh, all the workouts he's doing in his uh, hotel room, uh, a lot of push-ups, a lot of uh, body weight stuff uh, going on. He's kind of racing back and forth uh, in his room. And I know uh, there's one other tennis player that has been featured uh, heavily over the last uh, day or so. Uh, I don't have her name in front of me, but uh, she's actually been uh, volleying. That's the one I saw, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, is it off the the window of the hotel? I feel like in it's the wall in the room. Yeah. 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 I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? You got to stay. Got to stay sharp. That's right. Got to stay game ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although I'm well, sure you would not feel that way if you were in the room next to them. No. No. It's very <laughs> annoying. I'm trying to sleep. Stop banging with that tennis racket and ball. Come on already. <laughs> it's interesting, too, how they have set up all the uh, parameters that would be the same sort of distance. You know, for an athlete, you want to know how much do I need to do this to achieve that mark? And they set up the tape in the rooms and it's, you know, it's so buttoned down because they don't want to have a day without practice as a, as a highly trained competitive athlete, you got to stay in shape and you got to find a way. And it's, it's just incredible to watch this footage. And listen, I am uh, the furthest thing from a competitive, highly trained athlete, <laughs> but I would like to say to these tennis players in Australia right now, uh, Welcome to the rest of our lives, <laughs> because this is exactly what so many of us have been doing now with the gyms closed, right? I mean, just last night, uh, for example, I was talking last hour about uh, closing my rings on my Apple yeah. Watch. Uh, you know, it's like a daily thing now. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyways, it's funny. This is exactly what these uh, tennis players are doing in their hotel room is what I'm doing in my condo each and every night. It's like a skipping rope. It's doing jumping jacks. It's uh, planking. I got my kettlebell. I'm doing that. And I'm trying to stay golf ready as well, right? So I'm like putting in the, driving, in the condo. Are you driving? Well. No. well, I haven't quite gone that far. Oh, you should. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe drive a few off the balcony. Yeah. Open up the uh, sliding doors and uh, hit a few out. So, uh, as long as you yell four, yeah, you're good. Really loud. you're good. You're good. You're <laughs> good. Yeah. Of course, with the stay at home order, I shouldn't really hit anybody, should I? No, you're right. There's no one out there. It should just uh, that golf ball just uh, bounce all the way up uh, Young Street. Yeah. You know? <laughs> It'd be just fine. But uh, yeah, this is what all of us have been doing since the gyms have been uh, closed. So, uh, you know, 
again, tennis players of the world, welcome to our lives. A mass vaccination clinic that was open yesterday here in Toronto at the convention center. Well, it'll be shutting its doors temporarily anyways, as of uh, Friday. And it's kind of interesting what's going on in other parts of the uh, world uh, in the states. uh, In Washington, the uh, state of uh, Washington, they've actually uh, enlisted uh, the help of Starbucks to help when it comes to uh, vaccinations. Now, no, your barista will not be administering a vaccine. But uh, Starbucks, uh, the company, says that they're using their technology and their logistical expertise to help in Washington State, in Seattle, and other uh, cities there, with site selection and to help optimize vaccination sites with uh, design principles and solutions, they say, focused on efficiency. And for uh, more on this, we thought we'd explore this a little bit uh, more because it's just a really interesting how they're uh, putting private uh, industry to uh, use here to help uh, when it comes to uh, public uh, health and uh, vaccinations. And for more on this, we're joined now by uh, Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. He joins us here on Global News Radio. Rocco, good afternoon. Always a pleasure to be with you, Jeff. Appreciate it as well. Uh, What do you make of this that's going on in Washington State? I mean, I think this is really interesting. I mean, uh, Starbucks, if anybody knows anything about uh, locations, uh, finding the uh, best uh, locations, you would think it might be the coffee company uh, Starbucks. Uh, Do you applaud the uh, state of Washington for kind of utilizing uh, some private industry here in helping with this public health matter? Uh, 100%, because quite frankly, the task in front of all of us is enormous. Uh, And um, to truly get to mass vaccination, we need an all-hands-on-deck approach. And business and universities and colleges and schools and labor unions, everyone um, is going to be playing uh, a key role. You don't have to go to Washington State. Uh, our wonderful friends at, at Bruce Power and Chapman's Ice Cream uh, right here in Ontario. Chapman's, who knew? You know, you understand how to keep things cold. And uh, so providing uh, a cold storage site uh, to be able to, to be used for vaccination um, in more uh, rural settings uh, here in Ontario, uh, today, we had the great pleasure of, uh, of launching this as a scoop just for your show, Jeff, uh, of uh, the uh, Ontario Vaccination Support Council, uh, co-chaired uh, by our friends at Bruce Power and Facebook Canada, and featuring uh, about 100 uh, companies and organizations, big and small, representing hundreds of thousands of employees. Uh, and really to be there to support the government, because think about the challenge. You know, the the Premier and General Hillier have said that um, that by September we want to have vaccinated 8.5 million Ontarians. Yesterday, we vaccinated 9,000. Uh, in order to get to uh, 8.5 million by September, We need to be vaccinating over 90,000 a day, every day, starting today. And clearly we can't because the supply isn't there. So when the supply comes, we're not going to be vaccinating 90,000 a day. We're going to be going into the six figures. Right. And you mentioned the Metro Convention Center, which is going to, you know, that that test site uh, for mass vaccination. It's 
its space where it was to be testing 250 a day. So think about how many of those kinds of locations, pharmacies and, uh, and in certain uh, job sites where, uh, where, it's, uh, where, it'll, where it's, it's permissible, where you can keep uh, the key standards, everyone's going to have to participate in this and, and we want to help. Well, you know, the Metro Convention Center is a great example. I don't know, I don't have the answer uh, to this, but I'm wondering if private industry, such as a Starbucks, was involved in finding the uh, location, since that's part of uh, what they do and do so well as a uh, coffee shop. I mean, the convention center, uh, maybe it was affordable, uh, available, and certainly has got a lot of space, but uh, really, is it the best center to do mass vaccinations uh, when you consider it's right in the heart of downtown? It might be cumbersome or uh, tough for a lot of people to get there. Is there parking? Is it readily available? Uh, All those sorts of uh, considerations. Yeah, you're seeing in the U.S., you're seeing in in Israel, which which is the leader you know, it has 30% of its population vaccinated already. We're we're at about 1.2, 1.3%. Um, and um, and arenas are are part of uh, part of what's on what's on offer. And uh, you know, drive-in um, inoculation uh, centers. Um, so we're going to have to be creative. Um, and and put, you know, what we want to do is, you know, we're not here to criticize. We're here to put whatever capacity, whatever logistic expertise, uh, and a desire to help on the table, so that General Hillier and the team can have access to as many tools as possible as we ramp as we ramp up, because we need to ramp up. There is no more important investment in 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 saving lives and getting the economy restarted than rapid vaccination of our population that is the light at the end of the tunnel and we need to shorten the the length of the tunnel as much as possible and only mass vaccination will do that all right. Tell us, Rocco, if you can, a bit more about this Ontario Vaccination Support Council that you just uh, announced, just mentioned here uh, moments ago here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Uh, who's involved? We understand there's almost 100 businesses. What sort of businesses, what sort of expertise are they uh, able to lend and offer? You know, we've got people with logistics expertise. We have people with uh, mass facilities. We have people who can help. Um, in communication, because part of this is also there is a segment of of the population that is that is vaccine hesitant. That um, and so having having communications tools to show people, leaders, personalities, etc., getting vaccinated, showing this is you know we're not the doctors, we're not the specialists, but we can provide that. So you know being co-chaired by two amazing organizations. Uh, like Bruce Power uh, and uh, and like Facebook Canada gives us that combination, and we have colleges and universities and and uh, and businesses, big big and small, who have the facilities, who have large numbers of employees, some of whom have uh, medical staff on staff, and who do and have done. Uh, you know, flu vaccinations in the past as part of of their uh, health and safety programs on site, how to adapt that 
you know, clearly the the hyper cold Pfizer uh, vaccine is far more complicated. That's more limited. But as you get to these other choices, Moderna, if AstraZeneca gets um, approved, these can be managed uh, in in less tight conditions than the than the Pfizer, and that's going to open up uh, the world to where where we can get to, including more rural and remote uh, locations. Just finally, Rocco, let me ask you: uh, Do you feel as if this vaccination support council will it be heard by Premier Ford, Mayor Tory, and the like? Because uh, one of the things we have heard over the uh, months of uh, covering the uh, pandemic is at times that uh, the government is not hearing us. Uh, we need this. Uh, we're, we're asking for that. It seems as if uh, it's been fairly closed doors when it comes to uh, taking recommendations from the uh, health table. Do you feel as if uh, those that uh, maybe are uh, non-healthcare companies, will their expertise uh, be listened to? When, when you have a burning platform, and we most clearly have a crisis uh, right now, and we've got stated goals, 8.5 million by September, for them to have any chance uh, at, at getting there, they're gonna need to accept every offer of help possible. Um, and so I'm quite confident uh, that, that they will do so. And you know, yes, there've been moments where it hasn't, where the communication hasn't worked, but I, I will say, and it is important because, you know, people can get jaded and they can get down. The reality is the the level of conversation that's been happening um, across levels of government between parties, uh, and yes, there are breakdowns from time to time, but but has really been unprecedented, certainly in my memory, uh, and involvement in, in these things. And certainly when you look at it compared to many other jurisdictions, not the least of which the one south of the border. Um, so, you know, let's, let's build on our successes as opposed to try to pick ourselves apart on, on, on our failings, because this is something where we truly are all in it together. Um, you know, yesterday was, um, was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and one of my favorite sayings of his, uh, which I think is so important, is we may have come in different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. And that's where we are, and that's why I'm confident we're going we're gonna to make it work. And there's a lot of goodwill and expertise to be had, uh, and I think the government will take advantage of it. We need to utilize it all, without a doubt. Rocco, appreciate the time as always. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, sir. Rocco Rossi is the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce.